welcome back to Compound Thesis. Our guest today is Noelle Ashison. She's the author of the Crypto is Macro Now newsletter, and she's the former head of research at Coindesk and Genesis. On the show today, we're going to talk a lot about all the global macro themes and what's happening in the markets uh, and how they're affecting just the evolution of crypto and, and broader uh, the financial ecosystem. Um, but before that, I wanted to jump a little bit into your background. So you've been looking at crypto for a number of years now. Can you share you know, what made you excited about Bitcoin and, and how you jumped into this space in the first place? Sure, Jim. And first of all, thanks very much for having me here. It's uh, it's really exciting to be here. I'm a big fan of Compound, so very excited to be talking to you about this. And yeah, background. I come from a TradFi background, like many of us in this industry, but that was a very long time ago. I've also spent quite some time as a tech entrepreneur. I live in Spain. Uh, Spain was you know, well behind when the North American development and technology and e-commerce companies back in the day. So I set up one of the first e-commerce companies in Spain at the time, ran that for 13 years, sold it, was trying to figure out what to do in the next phase of my life, didn't want to go back to doing the same thing, interested in finance, interested in technology, started reading to figure out what had been happening, was to catch up with what had been happening in the world when I wasn't paying attention trying to run a company, I'm sure you know mm -hmm. how it is, and uh, kept hearing about this thing called Bitcoin and um, started to look into what is Bitcoin. I remember watching a Khan Academy video, do you remember those? Back in, I think it was January 2014, my parents' living room over the Christmas break. And um, I grew up in Zambia. This is probably relevant background when I realized that what I was looking at was a way to make payments in, in a permissionless way. I got goosebumps. I'm even just thinking about what it could do in that part of the world. Obviously, it hasn't quite worked out that way yet, I should say, very big caveat. But that is what drew me into the space originally, is potential to transform finance in the emerging economies. The more I dug into it, this is just the idea was so fascinating, the more I realized how hard that would be, but the more interesting it got. I mean, you know, Jim was saying that you should judge a man or a woman by his or her enemies, right? Well, the barriers uh, in the way of the development of Bitcoin were just so important and so interesting. And that, that got me totally hooked. I really wanted to help an industry with so much going against it, but with so much transformative potential to help it grow. So after a couple of years doing research and teaching some, I I wrote to the managing director of Coindesk at the time and gave him a list of reasons why he should hire me. And uh, much to my surprise, he actually did and haven't looked back since. I haven't had a single boring day since. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, ever since, you know, people get into this space, there's there's always something keeping you on your toes, certainly, especially from a macro perspective. And the world that we're living in right now is the tectonic plates continue to shift uh, quite a bit, um, both in the U.S. And, and across the globe. So, you know, as you look at crypto broadly, you know, what do you think its its role is in the broader financial markets? We'll dive a little bit into some of the recent events, but, um, you know, just as a overall view on the asset class, you know, how do you kind of take account for that? It has changed so much. And that's one of the things I feel totally privileged to have been witness to. I started working at Coindesk in 2016 and I started covering mainly institutional sort of things because they come from fund management. That's what I was doing before I did my e-commerce thing. Um, it Would Bitcoin have a role if in institutions, in traditional institutions. And my stand was, well, yes, definitely, because even if it is a retail first technology, even if it is a retail first asset, the only one of its kind, in fact, no, no other liquid asset today started retail first, even if we wanted to say retail on the ideological side, most retail invest through institutions. And 
Bitcoin I saw from early on would need some sort of institutional support. So I started watching the institutional adoption again back in 2016 when it really didn't exist yet. I mean, some firms such as Fidelity and other big names were looking around, but there wasn't the, the, the wave of support that we saw a couple of hours later. So watching its role change from an alternative system, that's what it was originally meant to be, with potential use on payments in emerging economies, still working on that one, to becoming an institutional asset, a macro-sensitive institutional asset. I've got to confess, even though I have spent most of my career in crypto focusing on that side, I was blown away by how fast it happened and how correlated Bitcoin became for a while to macro assets, to the risk environment more broadly. Its role today, which is what you were asking, and I took a detour there, its role today is varied. And that's one of the most fascinating aspects about it. Also, what other asset out there has such a wide diversity of use cases, of investment theses, potential applications, and of potential outcomes, in fact, as, as Bitcoin and many other crypto assets as well. Generally, when I say Bitcoin, it's as the leader of the crypto markets in terms of market cap and also the, the main on-ramp for many institutional as well as retail investors. So I do tend to conflate them, which I shouldn't do because they are very, very, very different. Hmm. But uh, it is, it's a, a macro investment asset for institutional portfolios that wish for some sort of diversification and risk exposure. It is a longer term store of value, seizure resistant, decentralized. It is being used as a payment mechanism in much of the world. We tend to overlook that. And there are many other use cases that are still emerging to this day and will continue to as we go forward. So Bitcoin is, I can ask this often, Jim, what is Bitcoin? And my answer sounds really hand-wavy, but it's perfectly true. It, it's whatever you want it to be. Sure. So, I mean, and it's seen quite a bit of a dramatic upswing over the last few days, which you know, as as any macro asset tends to follow moves in interest rates. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what's happening in the in the asset for the last you know couple of days, given all that's happened? Absolutely wild what's been happening. I mean, I'm sure most of your viewers, as well as you probably spent a lot of the weekend glued to the screens. Extraordinary. And again, I'm surprised. I've been expecting some groundswell of interest in Bitcoin for two main reasons and I've been writing about this for the past few weeks. One, because of the changing macro environment that really accelerated over the past few days. And that is the Fed will continue to raise rates until something breaks and it looks like we are there, in which case, the expectations for future rate hikes, the terminal rates, and for the, the time that we will be getting some cuts uh, has suddenly dropped precipitously. So you've got the macro narrative that is pushing Bitcoin now. It does look like we are going to reach peak or terminal rate, perhaps the next FOMC meeting, whatever happens to this one, it could be the next one. And then the markets are pricing in cuts from June, which literally five days ago would have been totally unthinkable. That is astonishing. The macro story, and we can get more into that a bit further along if you like, because it is fascinating. But at the same time, we have a different kind of narrative coming into play right now. We have a narrative that sees Bitcoin as an alternative to the opaque, centralized, and relatively unstable banking system that we have, that has been laid bare over the past few days. Over the past few days, Jim, how many people have learned how the banking system works for the very first time? And this is obviously going to cause some concern. I'm not saying we're going to see a mainstream stampede into any of the crypto assets or crypto markets just yet, but people are going to start learning about it. People are going to start asking the right questions, which is a very important step towards seeing how different types of tools can be used for different types of 
alternative solutions. We've seen two narratives being played out at the moment. Right now, today, I think it is still the macro narrative that is leading simply because of the timing of the upswing and because of the reaction to the CPI figure as well as the, the comments from the officials over the weekend. But the second narrative, the bigger picture narrative, the alternative system narrative, that is going to come into force over the coming weeks. And then, Jim, we do have the narrative whereby if we are going to come into easing mode yet again, if the Fed finds it has to print money to be able to save the economy, et cetera, et cetera, well, then investors are going to be looking for hard assets, whatever the decentralization thesis, hard assets such as gold, which is also rallying today, and such as Bitcoin. Many things going on at the moment with the Bitcoin price yesterday, today, and going forward in different weightings at different times of day. And that in itself, the different theses in play here, that in itself gives it support. That gives it a price floor with many different reasons for, with, for which to buy something like Bitcoin, many different reasons for it to have some kind of buying support should sentiment turn yet again. And that is something that any kind of investor will be taking into account. Yeah, it definitely makes it a colorful market, you know, especially uh, with all the different themes that are going on. But on that first one that you mentioned, I think what's really interesting is that, you know, if you wind back the clocks, you know, four months ago to the beginning, you know, to the end of 2022, you know, the narrative was that the Fed was going to continue to raise rates at, you know, a very aggressive clip. And then there was a narrative that said that the Fed was going to overdo their process, have to cut rates. Then you know you had Chair Powell saying disinflation a number of times in his latest meeting, and then two weeks ago is speaking in front of the banking committee saying that he needs to raise rates even further. So the volatility, just the changes in expectations have just been whipsawing around quite a bit. And now here we are with the stress test that we've seen over the weekend has now created a new narrative. We're back to the your narrative of, of rate cuts. And so how do you think investors should position or can they position, uh, you know, given just the volatility of interest rates? I think one thing that you keep pointing out in your newsletters is that the move index, which is the volatility of interest rates, has hit, you know, in a crazy amount of velocity over the last few days, which should not be the case in a relatively mundane part of the market, which is interest rates. So yeah, could you unpack that a little bit for us and how people should be thinking about what's going on from that perspective? You hit the nail on the head there, Jim. The move index is the volatility index for the US Treasury market, and it is up at levels that we haven't seen in decades. And this is for supposedly the safest assets in the market should not be that volatile. There are signs of stress, the, the FRA OIS spread as well. There are just signs of stress all over the place. And they are confusing. They are sending conflicting signals. I've been keeping an eye on the CME uh, swaps rate over the weekend. I've never seen them that volatile, swinging wildly intraday. And of course, you know, the weekend volatility is lower, but still, the market is very, very confused. And you've got wide dispersion of opinions as well as to what kind of interest rate hike we're going to get next week. And the outcome of this, again, no one knows. We haven't been in this kind of a territory ever before. And by that, I mean we haven't been 
in such a globalized financial market with the megaphone of social media and the ease with which money can be transferred either into or out of banks or across borders even. This is different territory. This is probably very scary for any of the financial regulators. I wouldn't want to be in their shares in their chairs at all at the moment. How should investors position? It entirely depends what kind of investors we're talking about. It entirely depends on the risk exposure that they can tolerate. But we're heading into some very scary times, in my opinion. I am one of those that thought that we would get terminal rate at around six. I thought the market was underpricing the terminal rate because I don't see inflation coming down to 2%. I'll go as far as to say ever again, unless there is a whopping recession, which I, I did, the data wasn't pointing to that. So I thought we would get much higher interest rates than the market was pricing. And I thought that it eventually uh, unemployment would start to go up and then the market would settle down. But we've seen this weekend that that is actually increasingly unlikely. And while there does seem to be some, some stability coming back into the market, it's probably not the last we've heard of banking stresses. The headlines of Credit Suisse are alarming to say the least. So investors should think about safety. Investors should think about what the market is going to look like a year from now and position according to that. Uh, crypto assets are under fire at the moment from regulators in the United States. And it looks like the battle lines are being drawn more firmly in the sand. But this isn't a battle that the regulators can win, short term, perhaps, for sure. But longer term, it's just not one that they can win. And so investors should be thinking about what is the market going to look like then. It's, um, it's scary times. Crypto is risky, and obviously nobody should invest anything that they can't afford to lose. And by the way, nothing I say is investment advice. I probably should have said that earlier. <laughs> but um, yeah, one thing that is investment advice, nobody should invest what they can't afford to lose because it is volatile. But we have seen the crypto market weather the mother of all stresses over the past few months, even going as far back as the FTX implosion, which was really, really bad, crypto didn't fall that much because it already had been punished so hard and because there was a support coming in because of the different use cases that I mentioned earlier. And the bad news that has come out since then, again, there's been resilience, a lot of resilience. That doesn't mean that it's not extremely volatile. The volatility's come down a lot, but expect it to go up. And that doesn't mean that there isn't some heavy there aren't some heavy battles ahead to be fought on behalf of the of the whole ecosystem. Yeah, no, absolutely. And with all the deleveraging uh, in the ecosystem over the last number of months, uh, there's been a dramatic drain of liquidity. Uh, and I know that that's something that you look at as well, not just within crypto, but across other asset classes. So what are you know some factors that you're looking at there and, and how are those contributing to your overall you know, kind of view on the space? I love that you separate the macro liquidity from the crypto liquidity because you're right to do that. They are very, very different. Let's touch on the macro very briefly. I'll, I'll talk about Bitcoin here. There are others, but let's talk about Bitcoin because it's the, the main on-ramp for many investors. Bitcoin is arguably the most liquid sensitive asset to macro liquidity that exists in the market today. And by that, I mean it's a risk asset. So therefore, it is, along with other risk assets, sensitive to increases and decreases in liquidity, decreasing liquidity, less money for risk assets. It gets hit, and as we've seen. Uh, and the other way works as well. When it looks like liquidity is easing, as we have seen over the past few months, Bitcoin is a beneficiary, but then many other assets are as well. What makes Bitcoin the most sensitive? It is not at all sensitive to cash flows 
there it has a long duration it also is not economically sensitive except through the vector of macro market liquidity so therefore it has it doesn't have the externalities that stocks and bonds will have or commodities for that matter so it makes it the purest liquidity play available to macro investors crypto liquidity is what at the moment is going to be giving bitcoin its volatility. Crypto liquidity is very tight, not just because a lot of money has been taken out of the system, not just because a lot of lending platforms are no longer there, but also because the market depth is arguably at one of its lowest points probably ever, in fact, and because there has been strong accumulation from longer term holders. I checked uh, yesterday around 70% of Bitcoin has not moved in over a year. If you zoom back to three years, I say three years because arguably three, anyone who bought Bitcoin more than three years ago could have sold it at a profit at any time, even over the really dreadful year we've just had. But 40% chose not to. Okay, arguably, a lot of those are probably lost Bitcoins. But still, it goes to speak to the constant accumulation from longer term holders, which withdraws Bitcoin from circulation. This doesn't mean Bitcoin's not liquid. It is. But it does mean that there is less available Bitcoin to meet the increased demand should it materialize that's where it gets volatile so two different types of liquidity both spelling a rather favorable outlook setting out a rather favorable outlook for bitcoin in the short term but again the volatility could mean that there are wild swings either way in the meantime so i i guess i'm curious and you might not have a, a view on this but with you know every happening that continues where we're up against a new another one in the next couple of months uh, and you have long-term whale accumulation that are just continuing to sit. Does that impact the narrative or the use case around Bitcoin if there's less and less in circulation for some of the use cases that have been defined for this asset? I don't think so because of the technological evolution. Another thing that many investors tend to overlook and observers as well is that Bitcoin is not just a risk asset. It's not just a, a, a decentralized seizure resistant store of value. It is also a new technology. We've seen recently with the controversy, I'll say, over ordinals, which is NFTs in the Bitcoin blockchain, that that it is still evolving and use cases that do not involve code changes can still emerge. We also have the upcoming development of layer twos, privacy solutions. There's just a lot of development going on on the Bitcoin ecosystem to encourage the use of different types of use cases, to encourage scalability, to see how it goes. But here's the interesting thing, Jim, unlike many other new technologies that we have watched evolve, we do all of us everyone in the world with access to internet get to watch the market decide what works and what doesn't with other new technologies we sort of have to wait and see for the final product we don't get the open source transparent traceability that the bitcoin blockchain offers so here we have a new technology that is emerging in real time in front of our eyes and we get to watch the market reaction we get to help the market reaction if we wish but the information is out there enabling us to make better decisions as to whether we want to participate or not and should we want to participate again it's accessible to everyone unlike other new technologies throughout recent history imagine if that same level of transparency was available in the banking system because of the surprise that came uh on twitter and you know other news sources as soon as svb and others were 
disclosing their balance sheet, which uh, auditors did not catch that, you know, uh, sleuths were able to look into in a lot more detail after the fact um, versus having real time visibility into the balance sheet. It's just dramatically different. The level of transparency and, and you know, available information that could potentially allow investors to protect themselves. Absolutely. And even going back to the whole FTX implosion, a lot of the sleuthing, we should have done more of it, obviously. But a lot of stuff that has come out afterwards is because blockchain sleuths have been tracking assets. Again, imagine you could do that. Imagine you could have done that with Lehman, for instance. It yeah. would have taken 14 years to figure out who owned what and where. And, and even just coming back to the sort of more mundane level of just the asset analysis. I mean, I talk to traditional investors often, and when I explain to them that with crypto assets, you have the equivalent of being able to see who bought Apple shares, when, what they've done with them since then, and all sorts of other behavioral characteristics around these investors without knowing their names. That kind of granular information about sentiment of an asset and how how shareholders behave, they're, they're literally, they're, their minds explode. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's radical transparency and it's <laughs> all the way on the right end of the spectrum, uh, which is certainly interesting to watch play out. So I guess uh, kind of tying it back to interest rates and, and, and inflation, you know, we had CPI come out this morning. Um, how does this play into where you're thinking about, uh, about general moves, the dollar uh, and how this impacts the markets and, you know, where, where you think that we head from here? It's a complicated question. If I, had, if I had a silver ball, uh, where do we head from here? More volatility. I think that's probably a safe bet, right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of the dollar, of course, it very much entirely depends on what happens with the debt ceiling negotiation. It depends what happens with China. It depends what happens, what the ECB does and who knows what Japan's going to do. So there's just so much at play now. What we can, I think, say with confidence, Jim, is that this feels like a regime change. We've been talking about this regime change, especially in the crypto ecosystem, for years now. And uh, the, during the pandemic crisis, it seemed like we were getting pretty close. And I would argue that what we're seeing now is actually the extension of the pandemic crisis. It feels like it's different. It feels like there is significant systemic change in the air, partly because of the scrutiny that our institutions have been under, partly because of declining trust for all sorts of demographic and socioeconomic reasons as well, but also Jim, partly because there is, for the first time that we have gone through these kind of changes, there is an alternative. Our society has not for centuries had an alternative to the traditional financial system, an alternative to government-issued currencies, an alternative to centralized control over efficient payment systems. Inefficient ones, sure, but efficient ones. This is the first time there is an alternative. And I'm not suggesting that crypto is the solution because I'll be honest with you, I don't think it is. I think it, it has the possibility to become part of the solution. But more importantly, it's a new tool in the box. And when you are given new tools, that shapes new questions. Uh, going back to my background, I come from traditional finance originally, and I didn't understand money until I learned about Bitcoin. And most of my former colleagues, probably still today, don't understand money. What we did was conflate it with numbers and we moved it around. We never understood what was behind it and why. N the new tools in the box that we have been given now are inviting people, encouraging people around the world to ask questions that they've never asked before. And that is a genie you can't put back in the bottle. So going forward, confusion, big changes coming in fairly systemic institutions, and a new type of choice 
again, for the first time in centuries, a new type of choice available to pretty much anyone, with, regardless of where you're from, what class you fit into, where you're, you know, where you live, to anyone. That is one of the reasons I'm actually more bullish on this industry now than I have ever been, regardless of what the price does. And the headwinds that are being, that US-based crypto businesses are facing at the moment, they're temporary. They're hard, they're brutal, but they are going to be temporary. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a shame to see, uh, you know, how this is playing out in the US when there's so much demand and talent that are chasing opportunities in this space. And continue to have doors closed in front of them. Um, but I'm curious on the on the rate side, do you feel like we're in QE forever mode now that we've kind of seen how tightening cycles, uh, although short, feel very volatile and impactful on the markets? Uh, like what is your view on, on you know, how the, uh, the central bank continues to operate given, you know, all the impacts that uh, you know, easy money policies over the last few years have impacted the ability to unwind those. I think we are coming in for easing. That's right. You did ask about interest rates and I went off on a tangent, didn't I? Problem. But uh, again, <laughs> these, there's so many threads to pull on here. <laughs> um, yeah, so apologies for that. Yeah, you're right. Um, we are, I believe we are coming in for easing now. I think the terminal rate has suddenly dropped a lot. I don't see inflation being anywhere near the 2% target, again, yeah. I think ever unless we are heading into a deep recession and i really pray that we're not but uh, we are in a different sentiment environment right now we are going to see increases in unemployment we're seeing as already starting the job market is cooling and the cpi increase that we've just seen that was just announced today most of that came from housing and we know that the housing market is starting to cool it however operates especially in the way the cpi is measured it operates with a lag so i expect the the pce to show a slightly different picture these are the economic data i'm going to be keeping an eye on going forward is definitely uh, consumption uh, expectations from consumers and the housing market, because that is what's going to drive inflation expectations, which is after all what the Fed most cares about. And the recent data from the New York Fed yesterday, as well as the CPI that we're seeing today is going to give Powell some breathing room to pause mm -hmm. and to wait and see what the next set of economic data brings, as well as how the banking system settles down, as well as what happens in Europe, because the banking system here is starting to creak as well. And uh, a breathing space will also give some of the economic data the time to show that the rate hikes so far have done some of their work. But one thing that we're not addressing sufficiently, in my opinion, Jim, is that Powell is trying to use rate hikes to combat an inflation that has been largely fiscal, fiscally driven, and that generally isn't going to work. Fiscal spending is not going to be going away anytime soon, especially given some of the, the acts that have been passed recently by this administration. And also fiscal spending in times of economic slowdowns tends to pick up. That is going to have a whole different set of problems for the debt, the US debt, as well as the interest expenses on that debt, et cetera, et cetera. And we are heading towards a moment when it just isn't going to work anymore. The United States already spends more on financing, on interest on its debt than it does on many entitlement programs, than it does on R&D, than it does on other things that are going to make the economics grow, the economy grow. But this is a bigger issue that will play out via small granular headlines over the coming months. Meanwhile, 
there are geopolitical shifts in play that are also going to be questioning the role of the US dollar. I'm not suggesting anything's going to replace it. I don't think anything will. I do think its role as the global reserve currency is fairly consolidated, but there are alternatives now. There is a fragmenting unity behind that role, and that is also going to change the balance of power. Here I go, I'm going off on a tangent again, I know, but this all comes back to your question of where are rates going to go from here? I think they're going to come down. I don't think we're going to win the battle against inflation, but I think that we're all going to figure out a way to restructure the economies to be able to live with that. The surface area that uh, investors or anybody that's, you know, kind of following, whether they're entrepreneurs or investors, you know, or, or just, you know, your regular citizens that are maybe not necessarily as plugged into financial markets as we are like there's a lot to pay attention to on the geopolitical front on the inflation front on the economy uh there is just so much for uh for folks to pay attention to and, and you said it earlier like we're in the middle of regime change which you know feels like it's happening very quickly um, but there are so many implications of how that will play out over the next, you know, call it five, 10 years. Um, but it's really difficult to keep on top of all of that um, yeah. because there's just so much that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis that, um, you know, as certain headlines, you know, capture your attention, you don't see the underlying, uh, you know, additional stories that are, that are, are shifting beneath the sand. Um, so it's it's a lot for people to stay on top of and and certainly uh, will have a lot of implications for uh, you know careers for uh, portfolios and for a lot of decisions that have to be made uh, in the coming years so uh, a lot to digest uh, which makes sense why we're running off into so many different tangents because it really <laughs> does you know when you talk about macro uh, we're we're really uh, trying to encompass quite a bit into this discussion. Absolutely. And Jim, you know, one thing that's also astonishing, astonishing, uh, comparing to when I started looking at crypto to now, but even just over the past year, is how embedded crypto is in the macro landscape. I mean, the headwinds, the, geo the, the regulatory chill in the United States is because crypto is becoming increasingly embedded in the macro landscape, in the financial system and elsewhere, even more so, I could argue. And so when I say that the the regulatory oppression, I'll use that phrase, that the United States eco, uh, crypto ecosystem is seeing will not last, it is temporary. It's because there are many other jurisdictions that are much more supportive, talent and capital will be migrating, and this will eventually become one of many geopolitical tools that will influence the balance of power. The United States is going to realize this, hopefully they'll realize it in time, but they are going to realize this. Capital has changed over the past 10, 20, certainly 50 years. It is more mobile, it is more flexible, it doesn't necessarily have as much of a nationality as it perhaps used to. And this is a different system that, again, we're still trying to figure out how we will be able to incorporate this new flexibility, this new level of choices in the financial system that we are building for tomorrow. It's uh, not no longer can we have crypto in its niche as we did for the first few years of its evolution. No longer can it just be you know heads down and build. Now there's a lot of that going on, and thank goodness and that is definitely something that the industry has done excellently over the past few months and over the very difficult year that we've just had, but. We also do now have to seriously consider its role on a much, much bigger landscape. It is almost as in, guys, this is what we've been working towards. Now it is time to step up. But you can't step up and think 
this is the solution, let's just all move to the Bitcoin standard. No, we have to really think about all of the different stakeholders in the global economy. It is complex, as you say. I look at this all day, every day, and I can't keep up with everything that's going on. But I can say that it has never been more interesting than it is now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's strategically important. It's being embedded into the fabric of so many different sectors, as you outlined, whether it's payments or gaming or uh, e-commerce or it's, you know, just financial asset. Uh, it, there are so many different use cases for this technology and for it to go offshore and have the capital and talent uh, leave this 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 country would be a real shame. And so hopefully there is some recognition of that in the not too distant future and that we don't stifle all the opportunities that we have here in America. So, um, but it, this, this industry will continue to build regardless of where it is. It is a truly borderless uh, ecosystem and asset class. So uh, it would be a real shame if we did not here in the States continue to drive a lot of that forward um, because there's so much opportunity and, and so many that are so passionate about building in this country. Absolutely. And if I can bring this back to the even more granular and, you know, bring in what Compound and others have been working on as well. Over the weekend, we saw USDC DPEG. That was very stressful. But why did DPEG? DPEG because redemptions were not possible because of the fiat banking rails over the weekend. DeFi worked just fine. And the reason that the USDC DPEG was because people were exit or rotating into USDT at a price that was suitable for them. That is how markets should work. What right. I'm saying with this is that we've seen over the past few days that DeFi yet again withstood the mother of all stress tests, worked as it should. You can't say that about traditional finance. It is uh, very much a pleasure to be building in the DeFi ecosystem. There's a ton of innovation, but the, the, the core foundation has been built really, really strong. And so what we've seen, and I could, could not agree with you more, watching you know some of the, the illiquidity and deleveraging that's happening in the traditional financial ecosystem uh, is certainly not impacting uh, some of the DeFi protocols that continue to operate 24-7 with complete transparency and robust uh, protocols that uh, continue to protect those that participate, knowing the rules of the road and seeing all of the the risks in the system 24-7 without, um, you know, having to get opaque reporting <laughs> after the fact. So, um, so yeah. Centralized opaque reporting. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so no, it, it's, it's, it's great to see um, continue despite all of the mayhem over the last, you know, couple of years and especially what's ramped up uh, since I joined Compound uh, back in May of 2022, which feels like a century ago already, um, <laughs> that, uh, the rails are, are continuing to, to harden and, and grow. And, and hopefully this lays the groundwork for more applications to be built on top of them because they are so strong and so robust and continue to open access to, uh, to more innovation. So we covered a lot of ground, Noel. I, I knew we would. Uh, I really appreciate the time. Um, any takeaways or closing thoughts? I would encourage anyone listening to just dive into the intersection of how crypto assets are going to be impacting the macro landscape going forward, as well as how the macro landscape is in, you know, making its incursions into the crypto landscape. Even with the collapses that we've seen over the past year, we are still seeing institutional interest less for sure, but it hasn't gone away. We are still seeing enterprise initiatives try and get off the ground, exploring how they can use this new type of technology to encourage transparency and lower costs. We are seeing huge growth of interest in securitized token, tokenized securities, right? In tokenized securities, which itself is one way that crypto is going to be making one of the 
biggest impact, the low-hanging fruit of market transparency and market efficiency. There's just so many ways at the moment, Jim, and they're all be growing fast of how crypto is going to change the world that we live in. And this is why most all of us who work in this industry, this is why we care about it. We're here for the change. We're here because we know that there are many issues. We also know in traditional in the traditional finance, we also know how important it is, not just to us in our fairly comfortable Western lives, but to the emerging economies, to people who don't have access to the same kind of opportunities and services that we do, who have creativity, who have initiative, who have intelligence, and who deserve access to more transparent, easier to spin up lower cost markets. It is amazing to see the doubling down and the collaboration in this ecosystem. You know, yet headline after headline and issue after issue that continue to wash up on our shores, um, whether they're idiosyncratic events that are happening in our space or, you know, larger events that are impacting the crypto uh, businesses that are, are building in this space, uh, continue to see great uh, innovators and, and collaborators just working and doubling down on some of the, the projects that they're working on. And the community that has been built around this is, is extremely strong and continues to grow every day. So okay. yeah, there's a lot, lot to keep track of. So I, you know, we really appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, check out Noelle's newsletter, Crypto is Macro Now. Find her on LinkedIn or Twitter. She's got great, great stuff. If you want to keep track of everything, she'll digest it super cleanly for you. I know I have benefited a ton from that. Um, if you like this, listen and subscribe to Compound Thesis on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify. And you can find all of our episodes on youtube.com slash at Compound Labs. Really appreciate everybody joining and stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks again, Noel. Thanks so much, Jim. It's been fun.